I hope you've brought your Bibles this morning. If you do, if you did, uh, turn over to Luke. Uh, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 3, and even though we'll look at some other texts outside that particular gospel, we're going to spend most of our time uh, in Luke 3 and Luke 4 and Luke 5 this morning. We're in a series of lessons called Discovering the Mission of God, and we spent the first few weeks of this year looking at the mission of God as it was kind of presented for the first time through the ministry of ancient Israel. And then last week, we began looking at how the mission of God was fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus himself. And we began last week's lesson by talking about the anticipation that was going on in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. Due to the fact that Daniel had predicted in the days of the fourth kingdom... And of course, if you were a Jew in the first century, you could look at the kingdoms that had come. You had the Babylonian Empire, you had the Medo-Persian Empire, you had the Greek Empire, and now the Romans were ruling the world of that day, and the Jews could tell by just looking at the numbers that it was during this time that God would set up his kingdom. Now, the problem is, in their anticipation, what they anticipated wasn't exactly what they got. Because the kingdom of God was going to be so different from anything they could have ever imagined. And so when Jesus burst onto the scene, what a shock he was. Luke chapter 3. Luke picks up kind of where Mark actually begins his gospel. Mark begins with the ministry of Jesus at the baptism of John uh, both Matthew and Luke include a birth narrative, but in chapter 3 of Luke, he launches into Jesus as he steps out of the shadows and begins his mission to the world. Notice the text. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And you get this incredibly important illustration of what happens at baptism. Jesus is that pattern. He is that model. Notice one of the things Jesus was praying. Luke's the only one that tells us that. And so as he goes down into the water with John, even though John had said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? He goes into the water and he begins to pray. And John immerses him, and notice what happens. It says the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the bodily form of a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Let me tell you that this is exactly what happens when we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we go down into the waters, God's Spirit comes upon us. Our sins are washed away. Jesus didn't have any sins to wash away. But our sins are washed away, and God proclaims us as His children. He's well pleased with us. And of course, in this text, you also see a beautiful example of the Trinity. God speaking from heaven, Jesus being immersed in the water, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. One of those beautiful texts where all three members of the Godhead appear at the same time. I think sometimes, even though we, we dwell on this text and realize, boy, it is this pattern for all of us to follow. It is also a moment in the life of Jesus that I think is, is incredibly important you see, up until this time, Jesus had lived 30 years flying under the radar. One of the things I think we need to understand about Satan is that Satan is not God. 
He's not simply the opposite. God is good, Satan is evil, but they're equal to each other in every other, you know, uh, means. That's not the case at all. Satan is not God. Satan is not omniscient. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. Now, he has his, his supporters. He has his minions. He has his principalities and powers and, 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 and forces in heavenly realms who work with him. But he is not God. I, I love Dallas Willard as he wrote his first book, he, or his second book. He entitled it, The Divine Conspiracy. As if God was doing something that Satan was trying to wrap his mind around, but couldn't quite get there. And I think it was on this occasion, as Jesus goes down in the water, that Satan all at once goes, wait a minute, this is what God is doing. This is who was born in Bethlehem. This is the Son of God? Now what's fascinating is that immediately after coming up out of the water, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's going to fast for 40 days and 40 nights being tempted of the devil. I love this last phrase. He says, at the end of them, his fasting, he was hungry. Of course he was hungry. 40 days he'd gone without food. And it's here at this moment that Satan, realizing what God is doing in the world, decides to attack. The only problem is he thought he was attacking at his weakest moment. I was talking with Stan about this this last week, and one of the things Stan brought up that I thought was a beautiful point, he said, you know, Les, most people think that after 40 days of fasting, you're weak. He said, you may be physically, you're not spiritually. In fact, the longer you go spiritually, the stronger you get. And with the power of the Spirit, you can imagine Satan as he miscalculated his moment. Notice what he does. The devil said to him, and oftentimes I think we miss the fact that we have a chapter break between 3 and 4. 4 ends with God saying, you're my son. Uh, three, excuse me, 3 ends with God saying, you're my son. 4 begins with Satan saying, if you are the son of God, playing off of his baptism. And notice what he says, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Surely you're hungry. Of course he's hungry. The text says he's hungry. But that hunger does not overcome the incredible feast he's had spiritually with his heavenly father. And the end result, of course, is that he fires right back. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, Matthew will add, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Weak? <laughs> not where it counted. And boy, he was ready to take Satan on. Satan then takes him to a high mountain. And showed him in an instant all the kings of the world. I mentioned a few moments ago, Satan is not omnipotent, but neither is he without power. He has a lot of power. You see it right here. He has the ability to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth in just a flash. And then he turns to Jesus and notice what he says to him. I'll give you all of their authority and splendor because it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. And much like what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan fills his temptation with lies. The ruler of this world, yes, in its rebellion. But did it 
belong to him? Had it been given to him? Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus had come to take it back. And so the temptation is basically offered, if you're going to take it back, I'll give you the easy way to take it back. And of course, the response of Jesus is, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, coming out of the book of Deuteronomy. And so Satan, being the crafty one that he is, recognizing that Jesus had quoted scripture twice to him, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. And when he gets to the pinnacle of the temple, he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Satan uses scripture as well. And he quotes from the Psalms. He'll command the angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. But again, Jesus is not even phased by it. Fires right back, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test, going once again to the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus knew something about temptation. To use the words of the psalmist, I've hidden your word in my heart that I not, might not sin against you. That's why memorization of Scripture, study of Scripture is so important. The Spirit of God uses that, that word of God that we take in to fortify us against Satan and his temptations. I love this text. Then the devil left him. But I want you to notice something else about it. This is out of Matthew's gospel. Jesus had gone through an incredible moment. Satan had thrown everything he had at him. He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. He was weak physically. I want you to notice what the text says. And angels came and attended him. Just one of those little bitty inserts that if you're not careful, you just read right over it. And yet at the same time, angels only appeared when Jesus desperately needed them. And so angels come and, and they strengthen him again for the task. And I love the very next verse in Luke's gospel. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, one of the things that I love about Luke is that Luke's going to set up this conflict that Satan has launched. Jesus is now going to come throwing it right back at him. And in so many ways, the best way I know to describe Luke 4.14 is that Jesus is armed to the teeth. He is ready for the battle. He's fixing to take Satan on in ways Satan could have never imagined. And so watch what Luke does in the text. He goes up to Nazareth. Luke, Luke does something amazing. He takes this story, places it right at the beginning of his gospel. And Matthew and Mark is kind of over in the middle of his gospel. But Luke places it at the beginning because it's pertinent to the theme he's driving at. And so he goes up to Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. The Bible says, as was his custom, as was his habit, he went to church. He had a habit of going to church. Probably not a bad habit to have, right? As we all can attest to today. And because he went home, they welcomed him back, at least initially. He goes in, and it's kind of like when I go back home. I go back home, they ne nearly always say, hey, could you lead opening prayer? Could you lead closing prayer? Could you read scripture? Could, you know, you know the, the homeboys come back home. And so Jesus goes, they give him a scripture. It's from Isaiah. There's no accident here by any stretch of the imagination. And he unrolls it to a specific place. Now you need to understand, in that time, very few people had the scriptures. They were simply too expensive. 
Isaiah would have been a scroll this big. I mean, it would have cost an absolute fortune. This, that, just that one book would have. And of course, it's in scroll form. But he unrolls it to the spot where he wants to read it. And then he reads something about himself. Isaiah is called the fifth gospel. More said about Jesus in that prophecy than any other book of the Old Testament. And so he unrolls it to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, the passage that Bill read just a few moments ago. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Of course it is. It had descended on him in his obedience to, to John's command to be baptized. It had taken him out into the Spirit. And it had come with him in full power as he came back into Galilee. The Spirit is on him. Boy, that's an understatement of all times. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news, the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of this is jubilee language. Language of how that Israel every 50 years was to put things right again. Now there's no, no history of them ever doing that. But here is Jesus saying, I've come to do it. I've come to take that which has been turned upside down and I'm going to turn it right side up again. And then I love what he does next. He rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. Everyone's looking at him. Everyone's eyes are transfixed on him. 30-year-old native of Nazareth, but one who had gone away and they're hearing all kinds of rumors about him and what he can do and what he's saying. And so everybody's ready to hear him. And Jesus proclaims today, today that which was written 800 years ago is fulfilled in your hearing today. And what follows is the first salvo of Jesus. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Isaiah said. But if you read on, he adds some other things. Notice the phrase that's, that obviously is on everybody's minds. It's just that Jesus didn't read it. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow, bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Ashes were a symbol that someone was in mourning. He says, instead of, instead of mourning, the oil of joy and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Everybody would have known what Isaiah 61 said. And here's Jesus saying, I've come to fulfill it. And with that, Jesus declared war on the devil and all of his allies. I think that's a theme that we sometimes miss in Luke's gospel. It's Jesus declaring war on sin, on Satan, on everything that's gone wrong in this world and beginning the process of making it right. Why Nazareth? Well, you might be thinking, well, it's his hometown. He's got a lot of support there. I mean, this is the base that he needs to, you know, launch his ministry. And the answer is no, not at all. Jesus went to Nazareth because he knew they would reject him. Notice what Jesus said. Surely you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we hear that you did in Capernaum. And then he says something interesting. 
no prophet is accepted in his hometown. You see, Jesus in Nazareth was simply Joseph's boy. That's all he was. He's Joseph's boy. I still get that when I go back home, even though I've been in ministry now 40 years. I'm still H's boy. I mean, I go back home, and every once in a while, somebody will say, so you're a preacher? Yeah. Yeah, I've been preaching for over 40 years. And, and in, in Nashville? Yeah, in Nashville. In a church of Christ? Yes, in a church of Christ. You know, I'm serious. I have people ask me that. You know, even though I grew up, and, and of course, there's a church right outside of my hometown called Chapman Church of Christ. Okay, does that tell you anything? Which right beside it is Chapman Cemetery. And right on the front row of the cemetery is where June's supposed to plant me. At least I hope she does. You know. I mean, that, that's, that's where I come from. But somehow you're never welcome back home. And Jesus knew that. And he launched in immediately to a sermon. A sermon not about Jews. A sermon about Gentiles. He said, surely in Elijah day there were more widows in Israel, but God didn't send him to an Israelite widow, but to a widow up in Sidon. And surely there were a lot of lepers in Israel during Elisha's day, but Elisha didn't cleanse any of them, but he cleansed Naaman, a Syrian. And as soon as Jesus said this, boy, that service went the wrong direction. Notice what the text says. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town. Blake, I've had some people tell me I've had bad sermons. I had a dear sister many years ago. I love her so much. When she came and, and became a part of the church where I was preaching at, she said, Les, I'm not going to compliment you unless I think you did a good job. And if you do a bad job, I'll tell you. And I said, I appreciate that so very much. And I still remember the Sunday about nine months later, she walked out and she said, you remember me telling you I was going to tell you when you had a bad one? I said, yeah. She said, today was a bad one. I said, all right. I thought it was pretty good, but she didn't, you know. And so every once in a while, you know, if you're a preacher, we've all had people say, I don't know about today's. I want to tell you, I've never been driven out of a church. They drive Jesus, drove him out of the church. In fact, they took him to a nearby cliff area there just outside of Nazareth. And I'm sure, Rodney, you've been there many, many times. This is where I took a picture four years ago last month. And you look off and you see up to the right, you see some buildings up there. That's kind of where Nazareth is. And they would have taken him up here. And I want you to look. I wouldn't want to be thrown off that cliff. And yet, I want you to notice what Jesus did. The Bible says that he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Almost as if Moses is parting the Red Sea. Drive him out to kill him? Not in God's plan. Jesus goes straight down to Capernaum. Immediately after having launched the war up in Nazareth, he goes to Capernaum. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Synagogue in Capernaum, it's this right here. This is a later, this is a late 4th century synagogue, but it's built on the original synagogue that was there in Jesus' day. Again, about four years ago, I was literally standing right here. And if you'll notice, the white stones are the rebuilt synagogue. The black stones underneath were the original synagogue. They call it the synagogue of Jesus. It's where Jesus was teaching. I mean, here he is in Capernaum, and he goes into the synagogue, and he begins to teach the people when all at once a demon-possessed man 
interrupts his lesson. Let me recreate it if I can. Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I hope that woke you up. I was looking at that and I'm like, man, I have got to do that. I mean, can you imagine the synagogue service as this man screams like that? And of course, what does Jesus do? I love the question, have you come to destroy us? And the answer to these demons, by the way, there's more than one. Notice the usage of the plural us. Demon possession was not, you know, always just one demon. Sometimes there was multitude of demons. Mary Magdalene, seven demons. So you got all of these demons. And notice, have you come to destroy us? And the answer is yes. It's exactly why I've come. 1 John 3, 8, I love this particular text. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil, he's been sinning since the beginning. And the reason the Son of God, the reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. And I'm fascinated that both Luke and, and, and Mark, the very first miracle Jesus does. Now I know you've got the turning to water, uh, to wine Water to wine over in John's gospel. I'm talking about in Mark and in Luke. The first miracle Jesus performs is the casting out of demons as Jesus begins to assault the work of the devil himself. People, as they leave the synagogue that day, they're just shocked. I mean, he, he just cast out a demon. And he did it with authority. As if he's somebody. And then he goes over to Peter's house. And, and one thing you need to realize is that Capernaum was a very tight community. In fact, I suspect you could put most of Capernaum within the area that we own here from Imperial Square all the way over to the manor. I mean, the houses were built very tight together in order to stay warm in the wintertime. And so to go from the, the synagogue over to Peter's house would be like leaving here and going over to the student center. It wasn't that far away. And he goes over to Peter's house, and notice he goes in, and Simon's mother-in-law is sick. I love Luke's version. Mark says she's got a fever. Matthew says she's got a fever. I see Luke researching and go, how high? Oh, it was high. Oh, so he had a high fever. I mean, the physician focuses on the kind of fever. And then notice, though, what Jesus does. He bends over and rebukes the fever. Odd way of healing a fever, rebuking it. Yes, because you see behind all of the sickness, all of the death, all the chaos we're seeing over in the world right now is the work of Satan. And what Jesus does is comes in and he begins to assault by rebuking it. And of course the fever immediately leaves and she gets up and ministers to them. Sunset. The Sabbath is over. People begin to pile around the door. Jesus heals. Notice there. Various kinds of sicknesses. Lays his hands and heals all of them. And then not only that, but more demon-possessed people show up. And of course, they're shouting, you're the son of God. And Jesus is rebuking them and casting them out as he assaults Satan every turn. And I love what he does next. So what is Jesus doing? He's attacking Satan. He's destroying his work. He is reversing the curse. You see, if you go over to Genesis chapter 3, among the, the, the 
things that happen, the consequences of sin, is that the ground is cursed. Beautiful language there. As God speaks to Adam, because you've listened to your wife, ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the Adamah. To Adam, I have cursed the Adamah. Now, if you're not careful, you kind of leave Genesis 3 thinking that the curse is reserved just for the ground, for the fields where we plant the crops. It'll have thorns and thistles. won't produce like it should produce. And yet, if you turn over to Paul, Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. Sin's curse went well, way beyond just the ground. Notice the way Paul describes it. This is from the Passion Translation. For against this will, the universe, the universe... All of creation has had to endure the empty futility resulting from the consequences of our sin. What did the fall affect? It affected everything that God had created. But notice, but now with eager expectation, all creation longs for its freedom from its slavery to decay. We're enslaved by decay. You ever notice that? I noticed it all the time. I had to go and get a root canal the other day. Two decayed. I get up in the morning and I take medicine. Why? Because my cholesterol is high. The body decaying. We go to the hospital and we see loved ones who are suffering. Why? Because of sickness, because of old age. You just fill in the blank. We are enslaved to decay and Jesus came to reverse that. You turn over to Revelation as the book comes to an end and God is on his throne and Jesus is at his right hand and the garden's been restored and the tree of life is present and God announces there is no longer any curse. Jesus reversed it. And one of the things you need to realize is that when you look at the miracle stories scattered throughout Jesus' ministry, they're always in the process of reversing the curse. Storms come, Jesus calms them. People are hungry, Jesus feeds them. People are blind, Jesus opens their eyes. In fact, I love this story. This is the next one. This is Matthew's first miracle story. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered, that's Luke's version, Matthew and Mark simply said he had leprosy. Luke said, oh no, 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 I checked it out. He was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You see, in normal circumstances, you step back from someone who approaches you with leprosy. You, you, you want to cover your face. I mean, you think we wear masks today, boy, they would have quickly put on masks. You know, you don't want to become a leper because if you touch a leper, you become unclean. Look at what Jesus did. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. And what happened? Jesus become unclean? Oh, no. He reversed the curse. Instead of the uncleanness flowing to him, Jesus' cleanness flowed into the leper. He became clean. And that becomes the story all the way through the Gospels. Jesus will go in, in chapter 5 to a house and, and he's teaching there and there's Pharisees and people all around when all at once the top of the room starts to give way as people up on the roof are, are, are cutting into it. They're, they're tearing into the top of the house to lower a friend down. 
And if you're not careful, you miss the whole point because when the friend is finally lowered down and Jesus sees their faith, he turns to the guy and says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Lord, he wants to walk again. He's a paralytic. That's why they brought him, yes. But you've got to deal with a real problem that brings all of this on the world, and it's a sin problem. And Jesus began in this miracle to say, Let me tell you why I've really come. I've really come to deal with sin. And then to begin the restoration process. Which is why on the day of Pentecost, when Peter had preached that first truly gospel sermon, the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, and the response of the people were, men and brethren, what shall we do? Jesus says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, that's how you'll get the forgiveness of your sins. And, 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 and you have this beautiful gift of God saying, I'll take care of the past. But, but I want to say something today, and I want you to listen to me carefully. Because this is what I grew up hearing. It's a truncated version of the gospel. It's not the whole gospel. That's the problem. And so listen to me carefully when I make this statement. Jesus didn't come to just save us from our sins. That, that, that's what a lot of us believe, is Jesus came to save us from our sins, and so we go into the water, we're baptized, and then we just kind of live faithful until the end, and God will take us off to heaven. God does save us, so don't misunderstand me. But that's the beginning of the process. Because Jesus came to reverse the curse, which means he came to restore us. He came to bring us back into the image of the God who created us. And the way that happens is what comes next that we so many times didn't hear in preaching. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because it is that Spirit that begins the process of restoring us into the image of God. And if you're a child of God, you've been buried with Him in baptism... What is God wanting you to do? Learn how to live in his image before the world. Bring justice. You know, bring freedom. Proclaim the day of the Lord's favor. Just like what Jesus did is what he calls us to do. Why? Because, folks, we're in a war. I appreciate Bill's prayer this morning about what's going on over in Ukraine. But can I tell you that that war pales in comparison to the war that you and I fight every single solitary day? Just as Satan attacked Jesus, he's attacking us, trying to keep us from becoming the image of God that we were created to be. We're in a war, brothers and sisters. And it's time we fight this war. It's time we prepare and go into battle. Why? Because it's just not about us, but it's about the rest of the world. Why do we pray for peace in Ukraine? So that the gospel of Jesus Christ can, spray in, uh, can spread in Ukraine. That's why we pray for peace. We pray for peace in Russia that the gospel can spread in Russia. We pray for peace in America so that the gospel can spread in America. That's what it's all about. And if today you're here and you've not been baptized, you've not been buried in the water, you've not received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you cannot God call God Father or Jesus Savior, what are you waiting for? We'd be happy to immerse you in the water today, to have your sins washed away, to receive the gift of the Spirit, to be proclaimed by God, this is my child with whom I'm well pleased. If you need to respond, do it right now. Let's go, we stand and sing.